You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal and I am a, an uh, associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, joining me today to continue talking about the Middle Ages is Jordan Poss, instructor of history at Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina. Uh, Jordan, how you doing? Good, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, you know, it's fine. Uh, it's, it's 10 million degrees here, but by yeah. the time this posts it probably won't be, so who knows. Uh, I, right now I am, I am doing fine. Oh yeah, it, it's it's hot here, and I'm tired, and I just did my taxes. So this is probably a good time for me to talk <laughs> the end of an empire. <laughs> uh, also, I assume doing Houston. fine is uh, shaking his fists in Houston. Uh, David Grubbs, uh, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, David, how are you doing? Uh, pretty decent. Hot here too, but you know, also humid, and that's good for my lemon tree. So. Mm. I, I, I that's that's probably the best lemonade you can make out of that lemon. I, I think. Um, <laughs> and I do. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. I have a freezer full of it, actually. So. <laughs> well, uh, we're we're continuing to talk, <laughs> continuing to talk about the Middle Ages, uh, uh, and uh, we're we're dealing still with the, what we started talking about last time. Uh, this question of the Dark Ages, which I think was a real thing, although within certain fairly well-defined, hopefully well-defined limits, uh, and uh, you guys kind of uh, uh, kind of pushed back on that last time, and I think rightfully so. Uh, certainly the uh, the popular conception of the Dark Ages isn't right. Uh, today we're, we're going to look at that from a slightly different perspective. Uh, that is, we're, we're going to look at that uh, from the perspective of someone who is living in the Middle Ages, uh, not conceivably in the Dark Ages, again, depending on how we define that, uh, and, and looking back at the Dark Ages and, and trying to explore that uh, through the, uh, the, the filter of history. Uh, Hopefully that's not too convoluted an introduction. Uh, we're going to be talking about Ninius uh, and his history of the Britons. Uh, I didn't ask you guys this. Do, do either of you want to talk about who Ninius was? Uh, I don't. I don't have a whole lot to say about the uh, the author himself. Well, there isn't much to say. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't feel too bad then. Uh, I was I was going to type on our outline just shrug emoji. <laughs> I mean, even even when he's writing is somewhat up for for debate, and, yeah. and not just like what decade, but like what century, right? Uh, yeah. When, yeah. When is this this coming from? Uh, and that also depends on how you suss out which parts are originally him, yeah. and you know which parts are just things that he sort of pulled together. Uh, so it, it's it's we, you know it, it's not even totally clear which parts are actually his original work. Not not that originality was the point in medieval historiography but um 
the the whole question is very very vexed. The ne- the nearest guesses I have heard are that it's somewhere in northwest. It's, it's whoever Ninius was. He's probably living somewhere in like northwestern Wales, probably close to the kingdom of Gwyneth, because uh, Gwyneth features fairly prominently in the narrative in a way that some others don't. Um, and uh, he pretty routinely misspells Anglo-Saxon names. He's not a native speaker. Uh, other yeah. than that, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the first time I the first time I read this, whatever edition it was, that was just an old edition in the library, uh, said six uh, hundreds, early six hundreds, uh, which uh, which I actually really appreciated because it gave us a uh, early five hundreds with Gildas, uh, early six hundreds with Ninius, and then early seven hundreds with Bede. So there's uh, even though they're they're a century apart, there's still kind of a nice linear progression. Uh, and then when we were going back to reread this, uh, the Wikipedia page said early 800s, which just kind of blew that that nice uh, <laughs> uh, symmetry out of the water. Uh, I was deeply irritated by that. Uh, but then it also said that early 600 is is not outside the realm of possibility. So I'm I'm sticking with that for the purposes of giving us some kind of some kind of progression. I think sometime just before 850 is probably pretty safe. But again, that's depends on which parts you think are Ninius and which are derived from something else and when you think it was all put together. Because the right. earliest manuscripts we have of it are 11th century? Uh, maybe even 12th? I, I can't remember right off the top of my head. And we've also got some, I think, Irish translations from about the same time. And the name Ninius isn't even attached to it until later. So it's... Right. It, it is a good... Like you said, it's kind of a good uh, test case for... Um, uh, test case for the historiography of this period and some of the issues with it. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which um, this is this is it presents itself as one scholar at a particular point in time just making a heap of stuff that he knows or has access yeah. to, and right. and to an extent that we don't know, organizing it. Right. So. Right. So that's one level, and then you've got the different. Then you've got the manuscript history of the Historia Bretonum, in which there are textual variants, in which there are passages that are added, and including. Um, I don't know if y'all read a version that had the wonders of Britain at the end, um, but it's this hilariously wacky, very Herodotus-like. <laughs> here's crazy things that happen in Britain, like this one pond that's got you know fish that live in different corners, and they're not the same fish. Um, you know, so it seems as if, you know, the way that it presents itself is that there's a guy with a pile and then after his pile, there got, there was more piles. (laughs) So it's very, it's very, it's very messy and, and it, it kind of gives a, a, just a test case into what it looks like to try to do what we like to do for history with the sources that this period gives us. Yeah, and, and, and that's, uh, that's actually one of the reasons I didn't ask any of us to try to summarize it, because this, this really is... It, it would be sort of like if you ask someone to write down everything they could remember uh, from you know, whatever the last history class they took was. Uh, and, and just and, and now that's our history that we're going to be drawing on, uh, assuming that the person you're asking, even even assuming that the person you're asking is a good student and was yeah. paying attention and taking notes and all of that, uh, it, it ends up being just kind of a uh, a giant blob 
uh, that's interesting uh, uh, and uh, and I think certainly worth reading. Uh, it doesn't take. I, I didn't have the wonders of uh, wonders of Britain uh, on uh, on the end of mine, uh, but uh, even even so, it was. Uh, it's not a, it's not a terribly long read. Yeah. Uh, if you if you did have to summarize this to someone, uh, how on earth would you do that? Because presumably our listeners, <laughs> not all of our listeners, have read this. David, you want to give that a shot first? <laughs> well. Okay, uh, it sort of goes um, roughly in what you would expect, because this is uh, Ninius, at least what we know of him, is a a Christian scholar, probably a monastic. Um, the introduction presents him as a as a, a disciple or a student um, of uh, a saint, if I remember rightly. Um, so. He's writing from within this, you know, kind of Christian and ecclesiastical situation. So he begins his history in the way that since, gosh, Jerome, Christians have begun a history, which is a which is with a biblical genealogy. Adam begets, 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 and then bringing it down into the range of history for which they can they can also have. Um, secular sources. So th- this was, you know, the way that Christian um, Christian patristic historians created um, a Christian universal history by stitching together the chronologies of the different historical sources of cultures that they had. So they had um, like um, Manetto in Egypt. Uh, they had, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the guy in Babylon. Um, they had the different Greek chronologies and annals. They had Roman sources, and they would try to stitch them all together and frame them within this Adam beget, 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 beget. Um, so it's a world in which all the histories are happening simultaneously, but it's God's world. Right. So yeah. that's what Ninius does. Um, he starts with he starts with scripture, and then moves very quickly into Rome, <laughs> and then from Rome to Britain. Yeah, I did. Um, basically, a chapter of my dissertation was on how Christian universal history. The, the kind of chronicle, the Christian chronicle tradition uh, grows up alongside of uh, the Christian uh, apologetic tradition. Huh. That's um, really interesting. Yeah, because you know you've got very early Christian apologists um, like Justin Martyr, who's arguing for the um, the primacy of the Hebrew scriptures over the Greek sources, Greek philosophers, because he has access to Jewish apologists who synced up Jewish chronology with Greek chronology and found that Moses was older than Homer and Plato. Right, like Josephus and his uh, antiquities, that kind of thing. Yes. Interesting. So, so, so you have Justin who's got who's saying, you know, when you sync up our chronologies. The scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, are older than your oldest Greek sources. Right, right. Which means that Christianity is actually the older religion. Huh. But then you have people like Jerome who take that kind of history-sinking project 
and turn it into a tool for creating a larger a larger Christian view of history. Um, right, right. Because our even you know that was one we studied in historiography at least at Bob Jones was the very the very notion that history is linear and it all kind of like flows together and branches out you know it is is itself kind of a Christian conception that we just take for granted now. Y'all did ancient asides. What do you think of Ninnius' Rome? Uh, I, I mean, it's certainly mythical, right? Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I think I, I like your, your kind of synthesis description, right? Because that's, that's clearly what Ninnius is doing, is he's drawing on not, ju- not just Rome and not just Christianity, but also uh, the uh, uh, British, I guess, for lack of a, a better saying, like the old Celtic, uh, although they wouldn't have been, I don't think they would have still been calling themselves Celts at this point. Um, the, the peoples, the tribal peoples who were there before Rome, uh, and the, the Saxons, like their their traditions and, and their histories yeah. make an, an appearance. So when whenever he is writing, right, uh, 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 you know, somewhere between 600 and, and 900, uh, it's it's the point where they they still recognize these distinct backgrounds, but they also put them all in the same history, right? They're they're uh, they're they're if not one people yet, uh, they're beginning to be one, uh, in a way that. Gildas, you know, Gildas wasn't going to give us uh, the, uh, the the background to the Saxons, other than as they're the villains, right? Only only in what you need to know to know, know that they're bad. Uh, here uh, we we see the uh, the, the Saxon kings uh, included alongside the others, basically without without condemnation, even though there's a recognition that you know there, this this wasn't a, this wasn't a gentle blending. There was conquest and there was there was warfare and all of that. Uh, so yeah, this this idea of and and I don't know if you guys uh, had mentioned this when when my audio cut out there, but this idea of the Dark Ages as a time when the the blending of these different traditions is going on, uh, and now we're maybe on the other side of that. Maybe it's still going on. I don't know what the author of this would have thought. Uh, I, I don't I don't know that I can read this and say, well, this is. This is definitely someone who's Welsh who's trying to assemble all of that together, or no, he's he's still in one of those streams. I, I don't know. Um, what? Uh, how about the, uh, uh, the the details of the reading? Uh, so what what is this a this a history of Britain? But what what are, what what's going on in this history? What are some of the uh, the, the the big moments uh, in the narrative arc? And I want to just grab one of those and run with it. It seems that there, there are kind of three or four of them, but go, go ahead. I was going to say I'll take the Saxons because that's the stuff I'm most familiar with. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, it, there's the the classical stuff, and I was I was very interested. It, it I began to wonder have I even read Ninnius because so much of it was surprising me. Um, you know, the the idea of some guy named Brutus coming to Britain, and that's what Britain is named after, which I associate with Geoffrey of Monmouth, but is as the uh, you know the, the version we were reading out of is a you know a 19th century version with footnotes interstitched into the uh, text itself, but noting that Ninius's inclusion of this indicates that whatever whatever the source of this particular legend and it is a legend, uh, it's clearly older than Geoffrey, and so Geoffrey's pulling on that as well as a bunch of other stuff for the history of the kings of Britain, which comes later. Uh, so you've got you've got all that stuff. You've got you know. Again, trying to sync it up, you know, what's going on in Britain and Ireland at the same time as, you know, Moses is parting the Red Sea and all this kind of thing. Uh, but as for the, the, the Saxons, that's where we start to get into um, 
stuff that passes the smell test as far as uh, likelihood. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, I liked David's image of a heap and that idea of you know getting even a even a good smart student to just try to write down everything you remember. Um, another another comparison might be you know take a smart student and send them to a thrift store and they've got to assemble a history of the United States out of just the books you can find in the thrift store which is going to be in it's going to be incomplete and there's probably going to be some wacky stuff in there um, so uh, uh, just something like that but the the Saxon stuff is where you start to get into things that are certainly more within the ambit of someone like Ninius some of it is seems pretty clearly drawn from Gildas. I think that's a pretty widely held right. scholarly consensus. So, uh, it, but it's more detailed. Uh, so, for instance, Gildas, I believe Gildas names Hengist as one of the chieftains who comes to Britain. Uh, Ninius gives us two, Hengist and Horsa. Uh, so, we don't know, there's just a lot that we don't know. Like, is, is Gildas, excuse me, is Ninius glossing Gildas is he just kind of expanding the narrative? Uh, if he's expanding this, is he you know? Well, these are clear expansions, but you know, is, is this stuff just sort of invented? Is it oral material that's been passed down? Is it other written material that he's now fusing into a single coherent narrative? We we don't know. So we you know we don't we we can be pretty sure that you know maybe somebody named Hengist was around. We are less sure of Horsa because he comes into the narrative so late. Um, but it's it's more detailed and it is not unlikely uh the story that he tells about the arrival you know vortigern the british king after the departure of the romans uh though still in contact with the romans uh says that you know three ships arrived off the coast of what is now kent um not likely because that's pretty close to the regions of you know the low countries and denmark where the anglo-saxons are going to come from says that they came in exile which is a detail we don't get elsewhere. Uh, not exactly sure what ex exile means, but you know, with all of the migrations and the pe you know movements of peoples happening on the con continent, it's not unlikely that a group could be edged out, right? You, you get to the North Sea and you can't keep backing up, right? Um, so you know, Vortigern does the the Roman Federati thing and hires on Hengist and Horsa, and you know, then they take advantage of the situation. They keep inviting other other Saxons over, um, uh, uh, Ninius sounds very much like a kind of build the wall sort of guy. Um, <laughs> but the, but the, the, the Saxons keep coming in and to the point where Vortigern's like, all right, we've, we've got more of you that we can possibly pay. So you need to go home. And of course they're not going to do that. Uh, so then, <laughs> then you get a, a, a much more detailed explanation of how it is that the Saxons managed to stay in Britain, even though Vortigern's against them, which is basically uh, Hengist throws a feast and invites Vortigern and you know gets him liquored up and trots his daughter around, and Ninius has his beer goggles on, so he decides that this is a a match, you know, a great match, and so they get married, which is again not uh, it is detail we don't get anywhere earlier, but it is not unlikely. Uh, we're not getting outlandish stories these these it, like i said to me they kind of pass a smell test for authenticity the quick the question again then comes back to where did ninius get his information uh and from there you get the saxon situation spiraling out of control uh you get the again as, as we note in the show notes the just kind of appearance of 
Arthur, who fights a series of campaigns all over Britain um, against the Saxons, culminating in Baden Hill, which is one that we, again, have earlier evidence for. Uh, here we get, you know, stuff that, again, is that kind of frustrating blend. Some of this sounds likely. Some of it sounds, you know, like it's been gently massaged to fit sort of like numerological schemes. Because um, right. there's a whole lot of, you know, 12s and this number. And I think uh, Arthur, what is it? He says Arthur kills like 900 men himself at Baden Hill, where, where 900 would be a very sizable war band. Right. Just of living men at the time. So it's, again, it's, it's, it's this, you know, our, our show notes say myth, history. Uh, it's some of both, I think. Uh, and again, the... There's there's details included that I think are helpful, um, insofar as again we just kind of have to intuitively try to determine what seems likely. Um, but again, the the questions about who Nineus was and where he got this information that's that's always a question. And I've you know I've I've to prep for this I was looking through a whole bunch of books and I mean there's various kinds of you know tables for calculating the date of Easter that are going to have extra information included in them uh, a lot of this stuff is probably just lost to it and some of it might be oral so again question mark question mark question mark I don't know what would y'all add to that well, yeah I, I think uh, the sorry go ahead David to, um, Hengist. I don't remember Hengist being I don't I don't think he's in guild Vortigern is in guild or with a guild yeah, well, I know. Hengist I think Hengist is, is in Gildas too, isn't he? I think Hengist and Horsa. Hengist and Horsa are referenced in Deed. I. I... Uh, yeah. Oh, they're, they're I've, also. I've got hey, my. I'm pulling me, up my Gildas here. Um, yeah, y'all double head check on the Gildas, and I'll share what I know. Um, this particular <laughs> chunk of, of Ninius um, I th- is one of the things that. This historic Bretonum is one of the things that is pointed to as dating him to post bead because this reference to two brothers with alliterative names, Hengist and Horsa, and who are the sons of Whitgills, Witta, Wecta, and Woden, um, and this Woden was called a god. Um, that is that is Bede's introduction of those characters. But what you see in the Historia is that it adds more generations post Woden, for the Wald, for the Wolf, um, Finn, Godwolf, and Geet. So, Bede doesn't have those generations after Woden. He goes back to Woden and stops. Um, but we know from the end of the Historia Bretonum that at some point in the history of this document, there is access to Anglo-Saxon royal genealogies possibly through the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle so this seems to be a place in which whoever's writing the history of Bretonum has access to Bede and takes this Horsa and Hengist characters and their genealogy as far as Bede takes it but then supplements it with generations from another genealogy that, that has given information about who Woden was descended from? So it's so so it's it's this it's this uh, it's this patchwork that's just woven right into the sentence, um, the pieces that are stitched together. And y'all referenced um, like the the battles of Arthur, um, you know that there are a certain number 
of battles. Um, one of the common ways that uh, Welsh lore is organized is through numbered lists. Uh, the most famous numbered list are what are called the Welsh triads or groups of three. Those are those are the most famous. But that idea that there are there are three of this, there are nine of this, there were twelve of this, um, and here they are, was a common way in which Welsh lore was organized and memorized. And when you see those kind of numbered lists show up in a text, um, it's a pretty good indica- indication that it's drawing at least at, s- at some degree of remove, um, potentially. Um, but it, it is drawing on something oral, because yeah. that's the way... Um, the British, who became called, who were later called the Welsh, um, that is the way that they orally organized lore for it to be passed down orally among the uh, kind of historian bard class um, within uh, within their right. culture. Right. You're, you're right, by the way. Hengist okay. is, is not mentioned yeah. in, yeah, that was in my uh, Gildas. So. Uh, <laughs> The the Anglo-Saxons are, but I need to. I would need to do a deeper dive on that because my understanding from grad school, which was a decade ago now, was mm. that Vortig, uh, excuse me, Hengist is attested earlier than Horsa, but I I, I uh, botched mm. that by tying him to Gildas. He um, is attested yeah, the, uh, earlier if Beowulf is older. Yeah. Maybe he, that's what I'm thinking of. Because the name Hengist is in Beowulf, but whether it's right. this Hengist is is debated. Um, there's uh, something that shows up in different Germanic texts, which is the idea of uh, a, a pair of important founders or ancestors in a royal line who are brothers with alliterating names. Right. And that is something that is pointed to hmm. with the Hengist and Horsa stories to kind of call it into question, to suggest that maybe this was a an, uh, a Saxon myth about progenitors that was later turned into history. Um, again, we don't know. Um, the thing is, you also have within the historical period of Angles and Saxons and that that they also tended to use alliterating names <laughs> yeah. in the historical period. So the fact that you've yeah, got yeah. historical or that you've got alliterating names and kind of these mythic progenitors um, but they also historically followed that practice. That doesn't mean that the fact that these guys' two names start with H means they're myth. Yeah. <laughs> find, find me a, any Anglo-Saxon family that didn't have a couple of Athels in it who were brothers, um, and I'll give you a dime. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I had uh, I, I remember now as well. Uh, I'm glad you, you mentioned the the poetry kind of thing because I one one. I think it was a, a book I'll recommend here at the end of the, the episode, but uh, uh, mentioning that the the especially the section of the uh, of Ninius on Arthur's campaigns and his twelve battles has a lot of the hallmarks of that kind of poetry and is almost certainly some kind of um, recension or summary of uh, one of these kind of list songs about uh, Arthur or whomever inspired him. Uh, yeah, do we uh, do we want to say anything else about Arthur, or should we hold off on that? I'm, I'm I can't imagine we're done with Arthur. Uh, I mean, Arthur's just going to keep. This coming is maybe back. a good place. Yeah, you know, it, it is worth noting here that he's not a king, right? 
right. Yeah. Right. A, a general of some so kind. That, that, right, is, that uh, guy that we met in Gildas, the Ambrosius uh, uh, Aurelianus, um, right. I think is his name. Um, right. He seems to be occupying the place relative to the Battle of you know Baden Hill, as they say in Monty Python. Um, <laughs> he personally wet himself. Uh, he seems to be... That guy seemed to be sitting in Gildas in relationship to that battle where Arthur is in Ninius. And so yeah. that that led to kind of a fruitful juxtaposition that different sources take in different ways. Um, yeah. With that one character either just being Arthur. Um, some 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 later scholars just said, well, Arthur is just Aurelia, uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus. Um, but what was more common... Uh, is Ambrosius Aurelianus or Aurelius Ambrosius becomes the ancestor of of Arthur or an uncle or something like that. Um, but he's not a king yet in this text. He's he's a powerful battle leader. Um, he has some very famous battles against the Saxons, but the notion of some kind of a uh, utopian reign, um, you know, the idea that he would be uh, a king presiding over a court of, you know, of knights who go off on their own battles. Um, you don't get any of that sense in Ninius. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to see what what is here that later gets picked up and what. Uh, what isn't here and must have come from somewhere else. Right. right. This is this is the gritty real Arthur, right? The, uh, the, the Bernard Cornwell Arthur. Uh, did you guys ever read those uh, those atrocities? The Clyde Bowen Arthur. Arthur. Uh, well, yeah, actually. <laughs> no, yeah. I never read Bernard Cornwell. Uh, there. Uh, I mean, he is a he is a good writer. So, uh, in that sense, they're good. But it is. It is really a bleak, bleak Arthur story. I mean, it's... Yeah. Uh, that said, I mean, maybe you guys as, as medievalists will, will appreciate it more than I did. I was like, man, just everyone's... Everyone's always, you know, dirty and bloody and stabbing each other in the back. And, like, this 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 is not the uh, the utopian Camelot that I, uh, uh, that I, I, uh, that I think of. Um, it's, it's the Ninius Arthur. Um, <laughs> I read Mary Stewart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Yeah. Ones that followed up, and that was she's she's pretty clearly got Gildas and Ninius um, as her kind of starting points. Right. Uh, so, you know, there there are there are novelists who have, who are working with the stories at this kind of at, at the level of these sure. sources. Um, Jack Jack White, I think we mentioned in the uh, in the uh, Rome episodes. W H uh, Y T E uh, has a whole series of of Arthur books where he starts in. Uh, Starts in Roman-ruled Britain, and basically, uh, uh, his his protagonist in the first book is kind of a survivalist. Uh, that is, he, he reads the writing on the wall and sees that the empire is doomed, and uh, uh, starts building a little community. And then Arthur is sort of the descendant of that, uh, which makes it makes it interesting. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of a yeah. So Aurelius Ambrosius becomes the Bert Gummer of ancient if, Britain. If I re- yeah yeah, <laughs> if I remember right, Ambrosius is. Arthur's uncle or grandfather—I forget which—he's he's Merlin's brother. Like he's the uh, uh, 
uh, the uh, the Godfather's sibling, basically. I forget I forget how all of that works out. They're, they're, again, he's a good writer, uh, and they're kind of fun stories. Um, anything else about Arthur? Again, we'll, we'll we'll come back to him, I'm sure, over and over. Uh, I just added one note to the the show outline. I think the term used of him is Dux Bellorum, yeah. right? Uh, almost literally, warlord Dux is where we eventually get the word Duke. Uh, it's a late Roman title for a general uh, with a very large area under his control. I hesitate to say jurisdiction, but you know, l- large territories. Right. Um, these 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 are a, a item of a really important item of continuity with the Roman world is this vocabulary for the military, uh, and that's going to continue all the way up through the conquest. So, like for my research on you know Hastings and and Malden and battles like that. Uh, a lot of the, you know, we've got a lot of Anglo-Saxon sources. We've also got a lot of Latin sources, and um, historians have spilled a lot of ink trying to match up words like dux and comes and miles uh, with Anglo-Saxon words to try to make some kind of systematic sense of how these vocabularies relate to each other. Um, so, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of vexing because the the vocabulary doesn't always be seem to be used with any real precision right. but if, but if Arthur was a king there is a word meaning pretty exclusively that um, so the, the fact that they avoid that and just call him a dux instead is um and I, I didn't look I didn't look at the Latin do do any of the other uh, so do does Vortigern get Rex attached to him I mean or, Oh, or any of I should have looked at that, but I would. I want to say he does. Okay. I want to say he gets he gets Rex or one of the or one of the related terms. Um, yeah, so it's not it's not like it's not that Ninius doesn't know the word. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. Speaking of Vortigern, um, there are also details here uh, that I want to say this is our oldest source for what. What comes to be known in Welsh lore as the treachery of long knives, or the treachery of knives, um, which is that uh, the you know Hingist, it's not just that he brings his you know Angles and Saxons and whatnot over um, to Britain first to serve as a, as um, as allies, uh, you know, in that. You, you kind of see Vortigern functioning, and I think we, we we talked about this when when we looked at Gildas, the idea that these these British kings are behaving in the ways that the Romans did, hiring barbarians to fight barbarians, you know, settling them in new lands um, in exchange for loyalty. Um, that so Vortigern has this relationship with Hengist, but Hengist also is presented as a kind of a, a Machiavellian. Um, plotter who uh, in order to arrange a peace treaty between the Saxons and the British um, invites all the no- all the British nobility and all the Saxon nobility except that the Saxon nobility have concealed weapons and at a point in the battle or at a point in the banquet um, he has a, a secret code war- uh, phrase that he cries out at which point every Saxon pulls out his knife and kills the Briton who's next to him. So that idea that Saxon domination over the Britons comes as a result of a treachery um, is something that, that becomes encoded and important 
in the Welsh memory of that time. Right. And, and Ninius is, is the oldest version. And if, if the Britons had just been exercising their Second Amendment rights to carry concealed knives, <laughs> things might have turned out a little bit differently. Exactly. Only, only criminals I mean, have Jeff, knives, Jeffrey you know. Turns this into an, Jeffrey turns this into an amazing uh, action scene in which one of the Britons, you know, is, is, starts, like, beating Saxons with a table leg or something. Um, <laughs> but, but Ninius is the earliest, and so... Uh, the, one of the one of the fascinating things that we're seeing starting here in Ninius, or at least developed here in Ninius, is the way that the Middle Ages, uh, through the Middle Ages, you see these kind of national rivalries, where they have different versions of the stories of what happened in the time for which they don't have good history. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and this is the story that the Britons told. Uh, by the way, the secret, um, the secret code phrase for, um, for the attack and the feast is Nimit Ura Saxes. Um, super secret code language. It's basically just Old English for, um, get your knives. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this, uh, and if, if I remember rightly, this, this may be one of the, the oldest, if not the oldest, um, recorded, you recorded phrase in Old English that is not from an Old English text. Mm. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, any anything else we want to say about Vortigern? Otherwise, I, I want to move on to another character here that I think is important. Uh, I mean, he's Vortigern is obviously filled out a little more than he is in Gildas. Uh, in in Gildas, yeah. he's just kind of either immoral or a buffoon or both makes a mistake and now there's Saxons everywhere. Uh, here he's he's humanized a little bit, right? Uh, uh, he's yeah. still certainly a faulty leader, but maybe more understandably so. Um, anything else about him? Otherwise, uh, we should talk about uh, uh, Germanus. Well, I mean, they, they, they mesh up in a particular way. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, uh, I, which is pretty cool. So, so uh, I think this is uh, a noticeable difference from Gildas, uh, even though uh, you know, I don't. I don't think Germanus is in Gildas, uh, but uh, 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 even though there is clearly Christianity in Gildas, uh, Gildas himself is clearly personally a Christian, uh, and the the church does make the occasional appearance. Uh, it's not really a robust institution. Uh, in Ninius, that's not the case, right? Uh, uh, Germanus is a bishop, and he's a, a general, right? He is uh, he is out there doing things uh, in his office as a uh, as a member of the the clergy. Uh, and he is uh, definitely a power or a, a figure to be reckoned with uh, in the uh, in the the world that Ninius is writing about. Uh, that that's not the case uh, in Gildas. Uh, in, in fact, I think it's uh, he does talk about is it Alban? Uh, uh, Gildas talks about Saint Alban sort of in passing, uh, but beyond that, yeah. I mean the, the the church is is basically a non-entity uh, in, in Gildas's writing. So I, I think that's kind of an interesting transition. Uh, uh, do what, does one of you want to, uh, to to give us the give us the details of, of Germanus, what he's doing here, and uh, uh, what his his role in this history is? That'll have to be David. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is Germanus of, and my French is always terrible, but it's spelled A U X E R R E, which I'm going to say in my head, Auxerre, something like that. Northern France. Um, Germanus of Northern France. Yeah, yes. Germanus in, in Northern <laughs> France. 
Um, he's a really interesting character to tie in here. Um, he has uh, a, I think uh, th there is a, a life of Saint Germanus that was written uh, written by one of his followers, some someone someone who knew him. So it's it's a it's a life of Germanus that's actually pretty close to um, pretty close to his lifetime. Uh, and he was a uh, he was a started his career as, as, as kind of a low level Roman official who who got a reputation for um, straight dealing who was kind of impressed into <laughs> the uh, the the position of bishop um, in the life of Saint Germanus uh, a bishop actually. Uh, essentially kidnaps him, baptizes him by force, and compels him to be his successor. Um, but, you know, there's there's lots of stories like that from the from the patristic era of people being made bishop when they had um, when that wasn't really on their bucket list. Right. Was it was it Augustine <laughs> who like would hide in alleyways so that people wouldn't find him and make him be bishop? Uh, him or Gregory or maybe both <laughs> I mean, it's it's actually a pretty common trope in uh, in stories of, of of bishops that nobody really wants it. Well, um, that's that's I, uh, I mean, that eventually became a actual criterion was you had to make at least a ceremonial refusal of the office, right? What's the? I can't remember the Latin, but there is actually a principle of like, you, you know, you have to actually forswear wanting to be a bishop, which is a good indicator that maybe you'd be best suited for using that authority right. <laughs> unlike unlike say a political system where you have to want it to get it want it and attracts all the best want it people. and actively fight for it uh yes yeah, yeah so so i forget if it's in this or if it's in the life uh germanus is uh he is in britain to respond to the pelagian controversy right that's uh yes yeah and and that is something that comes from the life. There's a lot of stuff in here that has no connection to what is recorded in the life of Germanus, but that Germanus comes to Britain to deal with Pelagians. That is in the life of Germanus. Right. So, um, you know, that's that's another source that Ninius probably, or whoever's writing right. this, pseudo Ninius, whatever you want to call him, has okay. access to directly or indirectly, um, but is then supplementing it with sources we know not. Uh, what origin, right? So Germanus is is in Britain to to uh, address Pelagianism. Uh, he cut, you know, come for Pelagianism, stay for Saxons, something like that. Right. <laughs> um, uh, he ends up he ends up functioning um, a bit like uh, an Old Testament prophet. He's a bit like Samuel in relationship to Saul. In the ways that he interacts with uh, people like Vortigern, hmm. uh, publicly calling him out, um, and at particular points working wonders, or at least being adjacent to wonders um, of, of judgment, uh, he leads the uh, the Britons uh, in a battle against uh, against the Saxons, um, in which uh, oh, where, where's the I'm scrolling down to look for it. Uh, the battle where they where they all shout something. They all shout hallelujah. 
or Alleluia. That's right. It's the uh, the Alleluia victory, right? I think is is what uh, what my translation calls it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Alleluia victory is not in Germanus's in the life of Germanus, but it is in Bede. So that may be that may be a source that he's relying on there, or both this uh, this writer and Bede have access to something in common. Right. But yeah, so so Germanus gets kind of roped in here. He also gets um, uh, uh, eventually. Let's see. It, it talks about uh, Saint Germanus after his death returned into his own country, um, which that seems a little odd. I, I, I assume <laughs> that means they either took his body back back to northern France or. He went to heaven. I mean, uh, you know, it could be. Yeah, yeah. Which is, work. I was, which is a I little was thinking weird. Uh, the my understanding is that Germanus actually spent the end of his days in Ravenna, hmm. having gone to uh, having gone to Ravenna in order to make an appeal to the emperor um, in protest for something that um, Aetius Aetius. Um, the that the sort of major Roman was it was he a, a general yeah, a, a general uh, I, okay the, there were some things that he was doing over in the Western Empire that folks were complaining about and Germanus uh, is supposed to have gone to Ravenna to um, complain about that and then died there but Ninius doesn't seem to know about that or care about <laughs> right. that he's he's interested in the way that Germanus brings written into that broader story of what's happening in Western Europe. Right. Both both religiously and geographically, right? There's the connection to Northern France, yes. uh, the connection to Rome, and the uh, uh, the, the church, right? the, the institutional church. Yeah. Uh, whereas the... Uh, Pretty interesting, because Pelagius was a Briton, right? Yeah. Yeah, although presumably the... Tradi- traditionally, yeah. The, uh, the, yeah. the Orthodox Britons did not like to bring that up, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, well, right, right. I mean, in the way that he tells the story, you would think of St. Germanus as, like, he's our guy. Right. When really, technically, historically, Pelagius was kind of the Britain's guy. Well, and, and but... maybe maybe you guys can, <laughs> maybe you guys caught this. I, I didn't really catch anything in what, what Bede spends, you know, so much time talking about, the uh, the British church versus the Roman church. Right, the, especially yep. the yep. Uh, and and we'll get to this when we talk about Bede, but uh, uh, especially the controversy over Easter. Like I, I and maybe it was mentioned once, maybe. Yeah. But uh, that that's just not there at all. So uh, again, depending on where historically we're going to place Ninius, either that's all over and it doesn't matter anymore, or it's before that. So why bother talking about it because it's before the the conflict really comes. Mm-hmm. And uh, if Germanus is part of bringing in. This this foreign church, right? This this other church, that's going to uh, start upending your 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 own uh, uh, ideas. Uh, then it would it would be weird to to emphasize him so much. So I again, I'm not entirely sure where where all of that fits, and maybe that's one of the reasons he's so hard to date. Um, yeah. I don't know. What what do you, what do you guys think? Is there is there anything here? British church versus uh, versus continental church. It effaces a lot of it. Um, there is one thing um, when we talk about bead. This is something that we'll we're definitely going to have to come back to because it's it's a major oh, yeah. theme in bead. Um, but 
just to get Ninius's version of it, when we get to um, King Edwin of Northumbria, yes, right. um, Edwin of Northumbria is one of the most famous converts to Christianity in that kind of first generation of Roman missionary activity. Um, but uh, it, Ninius or the Historia Britonum reports that Edwin converts and that he receives baptism and then the next uh, and then he says if anyone wishes to know who baptized them it was Rum Map Urbion he was engaged 40 days in baptizing all classes of Saxons and by his preaching many believed in Christ um but in Bede, <laughs> it's Paulinus or Pauli, uh, who or Paulinus who is um, one of the Roman missionaries uh, who comes with Augustine of Canterbury. So uh, the Historia Bertonum is definitely making a play for some kind of spiritual, uh, some kind of spiritual authority over at least the Saxons of Northumbria through the rite of baptism. And if, if we want to harmonize those, can we just say that Edwin was double-dipping here? I mean... <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> maybe, you, you know, maybe he was baptized by Paulinus, and then later he, you know, rededicated his life yep, to Christ yep. after backsliding. The, I think the, the real question, as, though... As one will. Uh, the, the real question here is, David Grubbs, why do you not have a child named Room Map Erbgen? Uh, because Bede has been more, much more important to my life and imagination than has pseudonymous. Fair enough. <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're we're pushing an hour with uh, with an obscure historian who may not quite deserve an hour, but uh, that's not fair. Uh, Ninius is fun. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're we're quite doing him justice, but uh, uh, in the interest of keeping yeah. this, and he, and he does offer us things we can't get anywhere else with with all the problems that come with right. that. And and as a, as as much of a heap as it is, it is still a fun read. Uh, maybe some of the lists of kings yeah. aren't so exciting, uh, but it 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 is an it is an interesting narrative, and it is uh, uh, kind of a, a fun story, uh, especially if you're familiar uh, with with the Arthur myths. Uh, it's in in some ways it's sort of like reading a modern historian who's like, well, I'm going to give you the real Arthur, like the the man behind the myth, and and obviously. Uh, this this author is not doing exactly that, uh, but it has kind of that feel to it. Um, anything else you guys want to bring up out of Nineus? The uh, we didn't we didn't really talk that much, um, but just going to kind of hat tip it because you know we may come back to it later. Uh, is the idea of we know we have that Virgil makes that play of connecting the Romans back to the Trojans, right? Right. And uh, Ninius's Historia Britonum is the earliest source that makes that move connecting Britons back to Romans, back to Trojans. Um, That's something that that ends up showing up later. Um, And I have been... uh, I have been told... I have not actually confirmed this for myself, but I have been told that if you look at the official genealogies of kings in England, uh, even into relatively modern times, that those genealogies will go back to Brutus, the 
you know, the generations removed Trojan Roman. Right. Um, so th- that move of connecting this, this people that had been, um, a barbarian people, right? Uh, they were in the classical world, not a people. They were in the sense that, that they, they, they were, they were those barbarians who were on the outskirts. We talk, a, we Romans talk about them. <laughs> right. Um, but in this historian, he's, he's actually saying, no, our people, we're not outsiders, we're insiders. Um, and, and, and is doing that by tying the history of Britain both to the history of Rome and to the history and to the biblical history. Right. Right. So this is one of the moves that I think makes the medieval, um, the medieval worldview. Um, the Midi- the Middle Ages, um, is characterized by these cultures that grow up out of the peoples that were for Romans barbarians. Right. Um, and they, but they are situating themselves, their identity and their stories of themselves within these two streams of story that they've inherited the story of scripture and the story of classical Rome. Yeah. And, and that's, that's so different for us to think about, right? Because we, I mean, I, I move in circles of people who dedicate their lives to arguing that we're part of this Western classical tradition and we're, you know, we're, we're firmly entrenched in these Greco-Roman values uh, with some Christian stuff thrown in just so we don't have to, you know, kill lots of people or anything like that. Uh, but when, when they make those... <laughs> When they make those arguments, that what they don't mean is genealogically or biologically, right? They they don't mean right. that uh, every American citizen is uh, descended from this obscure character in the Iliad. Uh, they're they're not trying to make that case. Uh, they they don't you know dig up Sarpedon and then come up with uh, you know here's from Sarpedon to George Washington, uh, or uh, you know again pick pick whichever. I think I think Sarpedon was a character in the Iliad. It's been a while since we've done that that core curriculum, right? Uh, so yeah, th- th- that's not what we're trying to do, uh, and, and yet there's still that same desire, at least uh, on on those those folks uh, uh, on kind of my political side of things, to to say, hey, this this is our tradition too. Uh, just yeah. we're not willing to go to that much work. <laughs> and I think that's uh, well, I I think that move from trying to connect yourself into a bloodline to simply participating in a more abstract cultural tradition i think this period is what makes that possible because uh you know and there there was there was in the greek and roman worlds some understanding that you know you could be greek regardless of where you could come from if you learn greek and do greek stuff but now you've got thanks to thanks maybe in part to kind of the universal christian message a huge expansion of that idea that you know in in a serious way while you've got people like the welsh and eventually the the anglo-saxons and then other people trying to literally connect themselves to the classical world again that's only possible because of the culture that's been left behind and a lot of that is being preserved by the church and so participating in those whether it's a biological thing or not you are joining it and carrying it on in kind of a new and continuously alive way which um i don't know does that make any kind of sense yeah and and i I have to assume there were there were counterpoints out there too i mean i and we just maybe these sources exist maybe they don't i don't know the medieval sources well enough but i assume that there are people who 
uh, in Ninius's time, had they been able to read and had they read this, would have said, what, being, you know, Welsh or British or whatever, isn't that good enough for you? Why do we have to tie ourselves to these these Romans? Let's uh, <laughs> let's just be good Welshmen and, and call it a day. Uh, isn't our tradition, isn't our people good, uh, isn't our, uh, our history good enough? Uh, why, why do we have to import this? Maybe not, maybe, uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know the sources well enough, but I... I would imagine that there was some kind of uh, uh, reactionary pushback uh, to uh, uh, to this. This I don't know. Maybe not. Um. Mm-hmm. It's it's really hard to say when you're looking at something, a text like the Historia Britonum. Its history is so hard to trace. It's so hard yeah. to pin down whose perspective is this and how broad was right. that perspective. Um, what we do know is that by the time we get to the 12th century 12th century no 11th century um no 12th century jeffrey uh by the time we get to jeffrey of monmouth um however minor and in a corner ninius might have been it becomes a very dominant uh political history that even if history even if contemporaries of jeffrey said this stuff is nonsense it becomes useful for a sense of kind of um, what, what we what we would call national identity right. um, to to anchor who Britons were and who they thought of themselves um, as in the world through the lens of these stories. So we don't know how important these stories were in the time of whoever Ninnius was whenever he was writing, sure. um, but they become uh, they become a piece of this the story that is later enormously influential. So in the uh, yeah. in the author's introduction to the book Hondo, uh, which I, I think was, was that Louis L'Amour, um, he, uh, I think so. Uh, so the, the, the novel Hondo, which was a novelization of the movie Hondo, which was a movie based on Louis L'Amour's short story, The Gift of Cochise. So there, there's your, your pedigree, right? Uh, he, uh, he has this, this line about how... Uh, Americans spend too much time looking to, to Greece and Rome for these great mythical stories uh, when we, we have that here. We, we don't need to go back to Thucydides or Homer or Virgil uh, in order to, uh, to have our, our, our uh, sort of inspiring narratives uh, and, and good pedigrees and all of that. We can look at the, and, and then he references the book that you're reading, you know, here's, here's, here's such a story that you can read, which, you know, uh, comparing yourself as an author to, to Homer and Virgil, I think is, is its own issue. Uh, but then he goes on to, uh, uh, to basically talk about all of the virtues that you would find in, uh, in, in Homer and Virgil, right? So even in saying, Hey, you don't need that stuff. Uh, he's saying you don't need that stuff because that stuff is really important. Uh, and you can get it here. So maybe, maybe there's not, there's not a way to get away from, Right. Uh, maybe maybe Jeffrey can't uh, 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 escape from the connection to uh, that that classical past just because that's the world we live in. Even if you want to, yeah. just shuffle it off to a corner. I mean, you know, shift up a, l- a little bit in time and a little bit further east and north to Denmark. Um, there is a, an 11th century guy. I think he's a contemporary. If I remember rightly, he's a temporary contemporary of Jeffrey. Um, named Saxo Grammaticus yeah. or Saxo the writer, right. uh, who writes a, a history of Denmark. But he begins by placing the ancestors of the Norse gods uh, in Byzantium. He has them as uh, he 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 feels 
this need to link the 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 past of his own people um including the gods of his own people who he who he you into ancient kings um he has to put them in the classical past um but you just you see this move over and over again in these uh in these medieval these kind of early medieval historians in their first version of their people's history um they have no bigger past to anchor into they so you have to tie you have to tie your people into the bible or you tie them into greece and rome because right. those those are your options and I, find your find your people in genesis or find them in herodotus yeah. and, and i have to assume on some level that's uh just the problem of the lack of writing like the, the lack of the written history to yeah of your own history to tie into uh yeah yeah, I don't know. That maybe maybe we should. That, that's yeah. that's a uh, for another conversation, I guess. Um, anything else on? <laughs> well, uh, see, go for it. I, I was just going to say to that point. Um, part of it too is that you know C.S. Lewis and uh, I think it's the discarded image makes the point that you know medieval writers had a over pro, because of they because they were aware of how much had been lost. They had an overwhelming drive to preserve everything that they could and so they had an immense respect for anything that just had the simple virtue of being written down and trying to synthesize all of that uh, into some kind of again holistic coherent um, gosh I hate this term meta narrative Uh, you know I hate that word but it it actually works there Uh, but trying to actually synthesize (laughs) all of that all that is available into something and give us some kind of give yourself some kind of shape and some kind of position within the redemptive story of creation, right? Because it's it's the Christian aspect of it the, of it that gives all yeah. of the rest of it meaning. Um, I, I think that's a lot of what's I think that's a lot of what's going on there. And again, that's you know what have we got? Okay, let's try to make some kind of sense of it. It's that, that silly thrift store analogy again. <laughs> yeah, good books never yeah. end up in thrift stores, by the way, uh, with with rare exceptions. Every once in a while, every once in a while, you'll find something good. Yeah, I, I like to think that people who own good books know that they own them and don't send them. Yes. So maybe if they die and then their kids don't know what they've got, but uh, yes, that's how good books get in the thrift store. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, all right, well, that's that's probably a, a good place for us to call it, unless you guys have any, any final thoughts on Ninius. Uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll continue this. No, or it's going to be thirty more minutes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll uh, we'll continue uh, uh, our uh, talking about medieval Britain, I guess, uh, with uh, with uh, next one of these on bead. Uh, so we will leave it there, and uh, thank you guys so much for coming on the show, and uh, we look forward to talking more about the Middle Ages. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast, or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. Is there not a white night upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I shout out for a hero.
with a wit that will thrill and excite, thrill and excite.